this is Reaching the Finish Line. And I'm your host, Callan Dix. Check out the website, www.reachingthefinishline.com. And pick up my free report. Save up to 75% what they don't want you to know. ReachingTheFinishLine.com And welcome. Today I am delighted to have Derek Newberry. Derek is the co-author of Committed Teams. Three Steps to Inspiring Passion and Performance. He's a lecturer at the Wharton School of Business and teaches in his executive programs. As a business anthropologist, he advises corporate leaders on the human factors that drive organizational effectiveness. He has published extensively and lectured internationally on cultural barriers to organizational change, including speaking engagements at the World Bank, Copenhagen Copenhagen Business School, Stanford University, and the University of Sao Paulo. He also received his PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Penn. As as someone, uh, as as uh, as being a fellow uh, Philadelphia native, and actually uh, having a first professor on our show, I'm happy to have him. Derek, welcome. All right, thanks so much for having me, Callan, and glad to hear you've got some Philly roots. Indeed, indeed, yeah. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm not an Eagles fan. And I'm not a Phillies fan, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got to be careful saying that around the town. You know that. So I know. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Let's go back in time. You know, how did Derek, you know, really, uh, you, know, how, you know, how did Derek, you know, eventually become uh, a prominent figure in academia? Now, were your, were your parents, teachers, and professors? Let's talk about that. Let's go back in time. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, both my parents graduated college. Um, neither of them had a PhD, so I have, I guess you could say, the highest level of education in my immediate family. Um, so the reason, so the reason I pursued a PhD and ended up in academia wasn't so much because of them in terms of the specific career path, but it was more in terms of the values that they gave me. Um, growing up, one of my parents, for example, was a mediator. And actually did a lot of mediation, was, was in a union and uh, did a lot of mediation between um, union and uh, management. Um, and I think that gave me a really deep passion for um, helping people see eye to eye, helping people make positive connections. Um, and I've also been re- always interested in understanding people's stories. So when I got to college, I actually wanted to be a journalist, um, putting those two things together, really caring about having a social impact and understanding people's stories, understanding where they're coming from. Um, Ended up uh, really quickly getting into international development just because I wanted to see some of the world, but similar idea, you know, sort of having a positive social impact. Um, And uh, through that, I got into anthropology. So it was a little bit of a roundabout path. Um, But then through understanding international development and poverty alleviation, um, anthropology is a big field in that. Anthropology is really, again, it's about, um, in a more rigorous sort of research-based way, understanding people's stories, their their worldviews, their perspectives, and and, um, how that shapes culture and how culture shapes things like poverty alleviation initiatives. Anyway, so I ended up getting my PhD in that. And then from that, I got into the business world because... My dissertation research was all about understanding 
cultural change in businesses. Um, and that's pretty much how I ended up uh, at Wharton, how I ended up getting into the business world. So very roundabout path again, but to me, it's all about stories. It's all about building connections, building relationships. So people work better together. They find more meaning in the work they do. Uh, they build better communities. That's sort of what I'm about. For sure. Now, let's Let's go, let's go to the moment from when you graduated from high school because a lot of millennials, or I guess nowadays, uh, I'm starting to get old, so I guess it would be the, the Generation Zers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of them, when they graduate from high school, uh, sometimes they don't even have an option. You know, sometimes their mom would say, I don't want to hear it, you're going to college. You know, like sometimes, sometimes they don't even have a choice to pick whether maybe they want to do a gap year or maybe they just want to just go full in and maybe uh, have an entrepreneurial venture. Uh, sometimes their parents are kind of just forced college upon them, even if they're not ready for it. How was it like with you? You know, did, did, did your parents kind of get you no option or was it a personal choice of yours? That's a really good question. I, you know, they framed it as as an option, but I think in reality, you know, because they know and and it's just become a social fact that to be able to advance and to be able to achieve what we think of as the American dream, the college, you know, a bachelor's degree has really become table stakes. It's become a basic requirement in a way it wasn't for, say, our parents' generation necessarily. Mm -hmm. You could, you know, have a high school diploma and still very relatively easily find a middle-class lifestyle, you know, let's say working in an assembly line or something along those lines. We know that's changed, right? Indeed. So I think uh, uh, for my parents, yeah, you know, they are the types, they're, they're definitely more of the sort of supportive types, not you're going to, you know, disciplinarians, you're going to do this or that. Uh -huh. But I think um, in the back of their heads, you know, they, they kind of knew that I was heading toward college anyway. And if I had told them I didn't want to, then they might have stepped in and said, you know, you have to think about what this means for your future. So I think it's tough for parents now because, yeah, they have to, that is the reality we live in. And um, I feel like as somebody who's interested in, in higher education, I think that might be coming to a head because if you look at the combination of the fact that a bachelor's degree has become a requirement for social mobility, but at the same time, the crushing debt so many students find themselves in, uh, it just seems like that equation doesn't really add up anymore. And I think something's got to give. For sure. You know, I, I really appreciate you saying that, you know, you know, the, the bachelor's degree, I mean, I, I definitely would say like over time, uh, the standards of education have risen. But the, the the kind of career opportunities haven't really grown either, uh, so it, it's kind of it's kind of a bottleneck in a way. And where it's like the bachelor's degree, it's like the new high school diploma. And really, if you have a high school diploma, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's just like so what. You know, yeah. and, and even when you have your bachelor's degree, it's like it could still be a bit challenging to perhaps find a career, and that's depending on what major you're into. You know, if you're more in a specialized major, you know, someone like yourself, like anthropology or engineering or healthcare, I mean, there's definitely uh, various career opportunities for, for graduates. Uh, but if you are, if you fall outside those, uh, those majors in a non-specialized uh, uh, majors, then it could be a bit challenging. You know, art history, theater, uh, liberal arts, these type of people, unfortunately, they graduate a bachelor's degree and uh, you know, they end up working at Walmart, uh, McDonald's, unfortunately. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, you know, how, you know, over the past, or, or, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, kind of how things have really changed and really uh, the standard of education have risen, but the career opportunities really haven't broadened. What do you say to that? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, well, it's one of the drivers of income inequality, which is becoming you know, a growing problem in the country that a lot of the jobs that we expect to be the providers of sort of a stable middle class lifestyle have been replaced by technology. So a lot of manufacturing jobs, right, or they've gone overseas. And I think that is that's a big driver, right, of uh, what happened in this most recent election, mm -hmm. sort of the resentment uh, and the sense, and I'm not saying, you know, and that's not to say I necessarily agree with the outcome, but I do understand some of the driving causes. You know, there's a large parts of this country where those jobs have drained away and, and people are frustrated and, and they're looking for better opportunities. So I do understand that. For um, sure. You know, I, I would, I will just add, you know, and if, you know, of course, you know, you know, my listeners and people who are, you know, people who have been listening for a while know that really, um, you know, I'm, I'm really not a political and by far this is probably one of the worst elections in history. Uh, and, you know, that's why, you know, you know, unfortunately, uh, well, perhaps not unfortunately, but the people have spoken and where 45 percent of Americans did not vote at all. You know, and it's kind of really uh, just a testament of really people are not satisfied uh, with the two choices that were given to them uh, this election cycle. And uh, and people just didn't want to participate, you know, and then, you know, somehow, you know, Trump got into office and and, um, you know, some people, they supported that because, you know, they wanted someone different. He's not the status quo. He's not an established politician. Again, I, I don't support any of them, but uh, it is quite interesting to see uh, how things uh, manifest. Start with a free audiobook. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. You may not have a lot of free time, but you can definitely listen to a book on a plane, on the bus, or even while you're driving. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. Start reaching the finish line with your free audiobook. I definitely want to talk about, because, uh, you know, you're, you're a Warren School um, business lecturer. Uh, you know, Wharton School, if, if I don't know, is one of the most prestigious business schools uh, in the United States. Uh, you, you, teach a, you teach a lot of their uh, executive programs. And, you know, nowadays, you know, we look at these types of uh, business publications and we see how, you know, people these drop out of college and say, you know what, this is not working. The student loan debt is not working or, or I don't want that. I'm going to start a business. Or some people say, hey, you know what? I'm not even going to go to college. It's probably going to be a waste of my time. I'm going to start a business. Now, you are a Wharton School business uh, you know, lecturer. You teach, you teach uh, uh, some of their executive programs. I would definitely like to hear what do you think about entrepreneurship? You know, do, you think, uh, uh, inspire, do you think a new entrepreneur can be just as successful without uh, the business school um, uh, experience? Or do you think that it's very pertinent that an entrepreneur goes to business school and ultimately it will develop them to be a better entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I would have to say, you know, in a very self-serving way. Yeah, absolutely. The business school education helps. But I think um, so to give a, a more sort of nuanced answer, I guess what I would say is, first of all, I understand the entrepreneurship bug. A lot of young people, young millennials have it these days. Many of my own students, you know, uh, coming out of uh, Wharton, 
for a long time, the ideal was to go into finance, investment banking, that type of thing, or management consulting, maybe. Mm-hmm. And even many of them are now looking to Silicon Valley um, and looking to different forms of uh, entrepreneurship as their ideal model for you know what they what they do with their lives and careers. Mm-hmm. So I understand that's gotten a lot more popular. And yeah, sure, lots of students think. Well, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, some of these people, Mark Zuckerberg, none of them finished college. Can I do the same thing? To that, I would say, um, I do think, as, I, as we were saying a little bit earlier, we need to rethink the model of, I think that a college education is fantastic. There are lots of things that the four-year college education offers. Mm-hmm. I do think we need to rethink this model of every single person needs to have this very specific four-year bachelor's degree to be able to ascend to the middle class and find the right jobs and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, so but what does it offer? A um, couple of things. Number one, absolutely um, a broad-based education mm-hmm. um, does give you tools that'll make you, I think, more likely to be successful as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is remember that um, small businesses have a very high failure rate. So even if you have a great idea, you know, most startups fail Mm-hmm. And what you get with a college degree is other options, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you get something, you can put that seal of approval on your resume mm-hmm. that'll open the door to other opportunities if, mm-hmm. if your startup fails. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I would say is there's also not just an academic education in the four-year university model, but a social education where you develop, you're on you know, a campus with lots of other people your age, you develop relationships with them. Um, you develop a social network, and no matter what line of work you're going into, no matter you know what type of business you want to start, let's say, your network is, to me, and the relationships you build are really primary determinant of your success. And so college is just a great way to meet lots of people, to build a network that will carry you throughout your career, give you future job opportunities, sources of funding if you want to start a business, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree that you know that model, we, we might need to, to adjust it a little bit given the social realities now, but it does offer lots of benefits and there's a reason it's, it's so powerful and it's stuck around for so long. That's an excellent point. And uh, to, 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 to kind of to highlight that, you know, a lot of people, they want to you know, some people are kind of, you know, I, I definitely admit I'm an introvert and I do a lot of my networking on LinkedIn. But sometimes people think that, oh, well, I'll just do that then. And that way I don't have to meet people. I don't have to, you know, you know, go out and shake hands and, you know, you know, actually have a, a one-on-one a physical uh, interaction. And, and, and that's definitely something you can get on LinkedIn. You know, you know, that's, you know, and, and that's definitely a value that college gives you. You know, you meet, you can meet professors, you can meet, you can meet, I mean, you know, you're a business professor at a very, uh, at at a very prestigious school. And, you know, I will, I will, I can only imagine the connections that students make there, you know, by being part of such a school like that. Uh, You know, you know, I I can only imagine, but you don't get that, you know, when you're, when you're on LinkedIn. I mean, of course I've met some great people on LinkedIn and, you know, it's definitely a, a great lead generator for myself. Uh, you know, for me, I'm an entrepreneur. So, you know, as like using LinkedIn to uh, look for a job, uh, you know, that could be a bit different. And a person could have similar success or not. But um, the best form of interaction 
is human interaction, one-on-one physical interaction, standing in front of someone, looking in my eyes, shaking her hand, having a real conversation. Because nowadays, I can definitely tell you, uh, you know, you know, I interview a lot of people, big and small, from Robert Kiyosaki to Laura Langmeyer to the co-founder of Match.com to, to small people who are also making waves, a lot of very uh, successful, uh, you know, growing startups. Um, and, and, um, and I found that, uh, you know, what was the point I was trying to make? Uh, wow, lost it. Uh, okay, so I'll just come back around. But the, the whole point of what I'm trying to say is that there's nothing more uh, than uh, human interaction. And that's something that you can get uh, on LinkedIn. And, and obviously, you know, if you go to conferences, if you go to events, if you go to seminars, uh, you can definitely get that. But at the same time, it's limited. A conference is just one day or two days or three days. It's not, it's not actually months at a time as you are in the business school and when you are among professors, you are I mean, uh, definitely among other people uh, in the business school who definitely have a lot of business experience, definitely have a network of themselves that they can share with you. And then possibly, you, and possibly a person can use LinkedIn uh, you know, a, a, as a as a, a supplementary uh, way to plug into someone's network. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. There's no better way to make connections than a physical interaction. And I think university, it's a great way to uh, definitely get that, especially, you know, especially if a person wants to get into business. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, it's not necessarily something absolutely every person has to do they've again we talked about a couple of models of people who have been very successful without pursuing a college education but for the vast majority of people it's the i'll put it this way it's the less risky way to go for those reasons yeah for sure and you know there are challenges people talk about well you know tuition is too expensive nowadays and you know i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna be naive and not recognize that you know tuition is you know increasing and you know you went to you went to university of penn which is a very prestigious university probably i don't know maybe number one in the whole state uh, i went to penn state university and of course those ex- those um universities are not cheap and uh really even if you even if you have financial aid package uh you know a lot of times you may get you know probably a fifth of your financial aid package will probably be grants, and the other uh, four fifths will be uh, student loans. And but at the same time, uh, it takes a conscious decision to see if this path is really going to make the difference. Now, uh, you know, if, if you're going to go to school for music, maybe you shouldn't go to, uh, let's say, Penn State University. You know, maybe you should go to a music school. You know, that way you can increase your chances. You know, of having. Uh, you know, a better career in music. You know, there's there's this great um, a music school in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, um, I, I've worked with a lot of students. I used to play music myself back in the day. It's called yeah. the Curtis Institute of Music. And the tuition is free. All you have to do is go there and audition. So if you play the violin, if you play the guitar, if you play the cello, uh, it, you know, what, whatever you play, all you have to do is audition. And if you get accepted, you know, uh, the tuition is free and you get taught by the most world-renowned musicians. So, uh, you know, again, you know, not going to ignore the, uh, the increasing costs of tuition. A person just has to think more strategically. You know, if, if, you know, if, they're, if, if they're studying something maybe in the arts like music, perhaps the music school will be better off. But if they are studying something like engineering, then, hey, MIT, uh, perhaps UPenn, uh, perhaps, uh, or, or if they want to be an entrepreneur, Wharton School of Business, That makes more sense. Want the full episode? You can get it when you become a premium radio subscriber. Go to reachingthefinishline.com forward slash buy 
to get your subscription today. What do you get? You get things like early access to the episodes, commercial-free one-hour episodes, mastermind calls with our guests, freebies from our guests, as well as much more. Go to reachingthefinishline.com forward slash buy to get your premium subscription for it's another way for you to start reaching your finish line. Uh, I'm very curious. It's shifting gears. You know, how did you become, because I see you have a Ph.D., in cultural anthropology, and then you're a lecturer at the Wharton School of Business. Now, is is business and cultural anthropology related? How did you kind of you know fall into that? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's not always a, a relationship that people draw, and it's a little bit different. Um, yeah, I'm not definitely being an anthropologist isn't the norm in a business school or in a business environment in general. Um, cultural anthropology is all about, it's what it sounds like, understanding culture, mm-hmm. understanding um, human relationships, how we interact, how we, how we uh, get things done, how we decide how we're going to work, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's exactly the application to the business school. Um, for a long time, um, and in and, and most of the discipline, anthropologists were really focused on studying, for example, you know, small tribes and, and exotic locations, that type of idea, mm-hmm. um, to understand like the essence of what humanity is all about or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, more recently, more and more anthropologists have gotten in the business world because they realize that that business and organizational life is also very tribal. You yeah. know, we form our own, you know, we form our own mini cultures. Um, we have the hard time sometimes understanding each other. When businesses merge, you know, when there are mergers and acquisitions, there are all kinds of cultural barriers where you're putting two groups of people together who don't see eye to eye, who have very different ways of behaving and uh, very different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so what business anthropology is all about is studying organizations the way you might study a tribe, um, to understand their behaviors, understand their worldviews, and understand, therefore, the barriers to them interacting productively and, and empathetically and all those things. So that's kind of the role of anthropology in business. It's understanding people's stories, perspectives, and, and helping them build connections. Uh, great. And you co-authored the book, Committed Teams, Three Steps to Inspire and Passionate Performance. And that's kind of a good segue because, you know, as a business anthropologist, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of working with corporate leaders, I definitely want to go into uh, the book, a very uh, comprehensive book. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, very, very curious to uh, dig into this. So, you know, what inspired you? I mean, obviously, you wasn't the only person that uh, authored the book, but you definitely had another uh, professor, um, Mario uh, Musa, uh, who also uh, authored the book with you. Uh, what was the inspiration behind the book? Do you just say, well, hey, you know, perhaps maybe instead of people asking me the same question over and over again, it might make sense to write a book. You know, what was the main inspiration behind it? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the original inspiration was that so Mario and I and then others that uh, were on a team with at, um, at, at the University of Pennsylvania, we had all been interested for a long time in groups where, you know, we're organizational development consultants and we're social scientists who study groups. So this is something, a topic that we'd been working on, doing consulting around. It's something we've been thinking about for a while, but what? Uh, but then what sort of brought everything together and was the catalyst for writing this book was that 
we were all on uh, this team as part of uh, Wharton's executive education program. And uh, this team in particular was part of one of our uh, Wharton's flagship um, executive programs called the Executive Development Program. So this is a program we run. Um, it's a two-week workshop that brings together executives from all over the world, across industries, generally people who are at fairly senior levels, but they're looking to take even the next step in their career, rise higher in their organization. And um, so they take this two-week program because it basically gives them a crash course in business fundamentals um, that helps them be, have a more, I would say, like a broad-based skill set. So maybe they're coming from a specific division and they're very specialized and they're moving up to a broader leadership role where they have to work uh, with lots of different divisions, types of people, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, this is a program that gets them to the next level. So as part of this two-week program, um, we have a teamwork simulation um, that uh, basically puts all of the participants together, um, divides them up into, uh, into teams randomly, and then they compete, they collaborate, they compete against each other in this simulated, really sophisticated market environment. And the whole point of doing that was to uh, teach them about, you know, how to collaborate effectively, to put them in these stressful situations so they can see their bad habits, you know, see, um, you know, for example, if um, you know, they have a tendency to dominate conversations in a really unproductive way, or if they make hasty decisions under pressure that aren't very good, to get them to understand and then fix those tendencies and therefore become better leaders. Um, and, but what we found is that, wow, we're bringing all these people together um, and, and putting them through this simulation multiple times a year. It's almost like kind of a, a living laboratory. And just by observing what goes on there, we could come up with some really good insights about what makes teams work and, and really importantly also why they don't work. You know, what goes wrong? Why do they teams so often seem to underperform? Why can't we get on the same page? Indeed. And so the, yeah, so the way we made those observations is basically each of those teams had an observer and, and still does. This program still running. And those observers are like mini anthropologists for that team of people people. So they're with them the whole time, they're observing their interactions, and then they facilitate um, these discussions after the simulation about, you know, what, uh, how, how are you interacting with people? How, do, how are you working together? What could you have done better? Um, so it modeled this process of observation, noticing how the team's interacting, and then making small adjustments to get better and better. And that became the foundation in some ways of uh, this process we developed for getting the most out of teams. Great. If you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking with the co-author of Committed Teams, Derek Newberry, also a Wharton School Business Perfection, Business uh, Wharton School Wharton School of Business uh, lecturer, uh, speaking all over the world. Uh, you know, as a business anthropologist, definitely want to go into the book. You know, chapter one talks about you know commit to know the rules you must you have to make them you know i think a lot of people are aware of that uh so we won't belabor the point now a lot of people obviously forget to implement the simple things the obvious things but you know i would definitely trust that my audience are, are definitely more astute and they already recognize that uh in order to know the rules you have to make them let's go to chapter two you know chapter two talks about you know what you don't know is probably hurting you and I, and I totally agree with that. You know, it's like almost like un, un, unconscious competence. You don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, uh, you know, you know, let's talk about the pertinence of that. You know, what you don't know is probably hurting you and how that affects teams. 
Yeah, so the basic idea there is that um, as soon as groups, and this is where a little bit of that anthropological perspective comes in, our feeling is that as soon as groups come together, uh, they start to form their own rules uh, around how they're going to get things done, basically. And that's true for any group. It's just something we do naturally. And those can be formal rules, right? So uh, official goals, things like that, um, titles, whatever. Um, but it, it's also informal rules. So little things like, you know, if, if any you can imagine any team you've been a part of, you know, you probably had um, a, a tacit understanding of, you know, when a meeting starts, who's the first person to speak? Or do you come five minutes early for that meeting? Or does everyone show up five minutes late for that meeting? So that's just a very small example of the type of common understanding we develop in groups about how we're going to get things done. And once you add those little rules up, what they create is a culture. You have a very distinct group culture and a very distinct way of doing things that forms over time. As we come to a close, uh, Derek, if people want to get in contact with you, uh, if they want to follow you, how to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to, to, I'd love to talk to your listeners, love to you know hear their thoughts about the book or just connect about anything else. So um, if you want to get directly in touch with me, you can send an email to uh, my, my personal account, DerekNewberry at gmail.com. So that's D-E-R-E-K-N-E-W-B-E-R-R-Y at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter um, at Derek O. Newberry. Um, yeah, those are both ways to connect. And find me on LinkedIn as well, Derek, uh, you know, Derek Newberry, of course, on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, happy to connect. Great. Derek, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. Appreciate it, Callan. Thank you for listening. Just another great episode by Callan Diggs, best-selling author and career strategist as seen at Fast Company and Inc. Magazine. If you're not on an email list, you're missing out. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and subscribe to get all the exclusives.